You are listening to Mommying While Muslim Podcast, where hosts Uzma and Zeba share their personal stories of mommying in a post-9-11 world. This podcast is designed with the Muslim American mom in mind, so grab a cup of coffee and pull up to their table. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Mommy While Muslim Podcast with your co-hosts, Zeba Hassan and Uzma Jafri. This is Uzma. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. And this is Zeba Hassan. Assalamu alaikum. We have a very special guest with us today, Alia Salem of Facing Abuse in Community Environments, a brand new organization that Zeba and I didn't know very much about, but ended up having to learn about because it's very close to home. Welcome to the show today, Alia. Thank you so much for having me. Assalamu alaikum. Um, so before we start talking about FACE, let's get to know you a little bit more. Tell us a little bit about your background, Alia. Where are you from? Um, tell us if you're a mom or about your family of origin. Sure. Um, so I was born and raised in Fort Worth, Texas. Um, I was born to a, an Egyptian dad and an white Texan mom (laughs) who converted to Islam uh, before we were born. And uh, we, you know, just had a a great childhood growing up. I um, am not a mom, unfortunately, hopefully one day. Inshallah. Inshallah. Um, But I have uh, been working in the community for almost 15 years now, um, just doing various, um, you know, activities. I, I started out uh, doing a lot of interfaith work and working in a masjid and during when I was in college and, and just kind of using whatever skills I had uh, to support. And then I got serious about it. Um, after I graduated college, I worked in corporate uh, for a couple of years and I was like, yeah, no, this is not <laughs> what I, where I want to be. Um, And so I I left to start working in um, humanitarian relief work in a nonprofit. And then um, I really started getting involved in the work that I'm really passionate about on racial justice and social justice, uh, working for an organization called CARE. And so I was their executive director for almost four years. And um, Oh, cool. Yeah. And that really helped me to kind of see what a lot of the... Um, issues were that we were facing as a community um, and my background is mostly in um, organizational development and so I do a lot of process improvement and gap fill work needs assessment things like that and so uh, I came across uh, this situation um, that Face is dealing with now uh, a mom wanted a an advocate for her daughter which is the first case we published on and I, I looked around and there was nothing within our community with a Muslim framework, with an Islamic framework that could help deal with this um, other than just going to the media. And since the media can be very exploitative a lot of times, um, uh-huh. that was not something I felt comfortable doing. And it needed much more than just that. It needed more than exposure. Um, and so we endeavored, I, I got some close people uh, together who had a variety of skill sets and and we embarked on this journey to create this accountability mechanism for the community. 
So, so Alia, you had mentioned this particular case um, that kind of got you into um, the work of FACE. Can you mm-hmm. tell our audience a little bit, just sum up what that case is for people that don't know about it? Sure. So um, it was actually in, in my community in particular. Um, th- this was a, a woman who I've known for several years, um, and it was a mosque that I used to attend when I lived in that city. And so she reached out to me and explained that um, some illicit conduct had transpired at the hands of the imam there, and her daughter was involved. And I didn't quite know to what extent. She just said, I need a female advocate. I need to talk to somebody. And so um, we scheduled a phone call, and uh, she explained to me that her daughter had been privately communicating um, with the imam for, you know, the past year, and apparently it had become very intimate, uh, and they ended up at a hotel room, and come to find out, he had been counseling her since she was 13 years old. Oh my God. And there had been a, you know, a very familial type of relationship to the point um, where she was calling him Baba, and they had a very, like, you know, father-daughter relationship, and so there's um, one of our mental health professionals identified that as a possible form of transference, where they, uh, the victim basically has changed their perception of the person and identified them in this replacement position. And in this case, she identified him as the father. So, um, you know, as we uh, went on to investigate this situation, um, you know, by the end we had found out that he had not only lured her to a hotel room and, um, engaged in sexual activity with her, uh, but over the course of a year and a half long investigation, we discovered that he had engaged in similar behavior and been fired from two other facilities for illicit conduct with women um, in Richmond, Virginia and in Tampa, Florida. So in in Richmond, Virginia, uh, there was a, a... a convert who he engaged in a secret marriage with and the, the masjid found out a, a secret second marriage and the masjid found out about it and then in the uh, Tampa, Florida case it was much more similar to the Irving, Texas case um, and he engaged in um, some illicit conduct outside of the bounds of even a secret fake marriage um, with a young teenage woman from his uh, from his community, one of his congregants. Um, and so it was it was really devastating um, not only for for this young woman in Irving, but to find out that at least two more um, women have engaged, you know, have been involved Victims. in something like this. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, I never got to talk to those two victims, those two individuals. So I don't know how no, they feel they- about 
how they you know. feel about this particular thing. But but I know I know you don't want to use that that turn of phrase victims because you're not sure how they feel. But when anybody is in a, in my opinion a person in power and they kind of use some of their influence. Like, you know, I, I, I feel like you are victims. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to say, I know maybe you can't say that on record, but I just feel like whenever you're in a position of power or authority, and a lot of these people do look up to these imams, obviously go to them with a lot of their issues, concerns, and you're using that as a way um, to manipulate the situation potentially. And the fact that he's done it repeatedly, I would... For me, I would have to say that they are victims. I mean, I don't know if Osma feels differently or if you feel differently personally, but I, think, I just feel strongly about that. Well, I think something that I've learned that's really important over the course of doing this work, because I'm not a mental health professional and, and I, don't, I don't claim to be, um, but something that I've learned that's really important is that um, it's very important for women um, or any anybody who is involved in these sorts of situations, it's really important for them to own their narrative and who they are and how they um, how they feel about this situation. Some people um, prefer to be identified as victims. Some people prefer to be identified as survivors. Um, and some That's don't, fair. you know, um, prefer to be identified as, as anything. Um, I've, I've worked with people who are like, I don't consider myself a victim. I consider myself as a party to what happened. I was in full, you know, conscientious awareness of, and, and I consented to this behavior, but it doesn't excuse what he did or what she did. And, um, and they need to be held accountable because it, it is an abuse of their power. And, um, I think that's really important for, people to be able to heal in the way that they need to by identifying themselves the way the they way want to be that, identified yeah absolutely that's fair. i think that's, that's critical mm -hmm. i'm in the survivor camp like i like the word survivor sure um but then you know i i think i like what you said that everybody has their own narrative and you get to define who you are you know it's um the question of what's in a name is mm -hmm. important to the person being named and exactly. they get to decide. So exactly. Um, imagine I like if that. imagine if you know something that you went through, and and somebody else decided that you, you know, were this, you know, that they put this label on you. Um, mm. It it would just it would ring hollow for you, and it wouldn't you know be an authentic representation. And it's really your story to tell. And mm -hmm. one of the things that we do in our process. Um, that we've implemented through this, you know, learning experience is that we do not um, investigate unless we have the consent of the people who are filing the allegation so that, you know, we can um, make sure that we honor uh, the use of their story and their narrative and that they give us informed consent uh, to proceed because it's not we're not law enforcement. We're not, um, you know, any other category than we're here to serve the community and we're here to help, you know, be centered on victims and vulnerable communities um, to to try and address these issues. 
Um, but it's also up to them. If they don't want this issue addressed, then it's, it's very hard. But at the same time, it's very important that they be fully ready to um, engage in the, the risk that, that does um, come with exposing abusive, predatory uh, religious and community leaders because it inevitably will um, has the potential to and often does uproot their lives and they have to be ready for that. Um, most of the people who come to us are, are ready and understand the risks um, and they're doing it because they don't want this to happen to anybody else. And, and which I think is very, very admirable. But I think it's important that we do um, center the victims and what they need uh, in the process. You have to prioritize, um, you know, the, the, the victims or the survivors' uh, ownership over what happened to them, but also the community safety, right, at large. And so you try to help them on that process, get them the support that they need to cope with what's happening um, for for all of the the cases that we take we provide um, compensation uh, to mental health service providers to offer them uh, a package of, of sessions so that they can you know have somebody who's only for them right so that somebody who's victim directed we're victim centered uh, but we're not victim-directed. Um, for example, we can't, once we start an investigation, once they've provided consent, um, if they don't want to participate, they don't have to, but it doesn't mean we're going to stop the investigation. Moving um, forward, right. Yeah, um, and, and that protects the integrity of the objective work that we're trying to do. Yeah, so, I mean, you brought up, the most important point to me, which is community safety. Mm -hmm. And the fact that these imams without any kind of, I mean, I don't know what the background check system is for imams. I know at our masjid, we have a seven point clearance that we require of them. And, you know, it's like this FBI, social security, all that stuff. You get, um, all our board members have a little card. They're card-carrying members of this clearance where it says they are not sex offenders. They're not um, criminals of any kind. And it's a seven-point clearance. You just pay a nominal fee for it and get it. But I don't understand how these imams are moving from mustard to mustard, state to state, mm -hmm. and nobody knows about it. You mm -hmm. know, it's like you've been here for 10, 12 years, but nobody asks for a work history when they hire you. I'm so confused as to how this happened. And mm -hmm. in my community, where I've actually sat on panels with this person who's accused. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really shocked that mm -hmm. I wasn't made aware before. I mean, I don't care if it's just an allegation and it hasn't been proven yet. Mm -hmm. Just that alone mm -hmm. makes me not want to sit on a panel with that person. My name was next to theirs mm -hmm. on a program once. Mm -hmm. You know, my children have sat there. My children have met this person. Mm -hmm. And it, it just, you know... It's so frightening to me. So can you maybe shed light on what happened in my town um, for our audience and, you know, what what generated this conversation with you today? Sure. Um, so there was an individual, and he um, was an immigrant from Egypt who came into uh, the States, and he worked, um, I think he did some uh, Ramadan, Tarawih prayers at the Isna Masjid up north, uh, and then moved to Fort Wayne, Indiana, and then from there went to Dayton, Ohio, 
um, where we ha we did confirm he was terminated from his position uh, for misconduct and and some other kind of um, more convoluted sort of reasonings. Um, but as then he went to Phoenix, Arizona, and was working in the Scottsdale community, IC NEB Masjid. And that's how we got involved is uh, some community members contacted us and explained that um, this individual had uh, violated his position and engaged in several secret marriages was the first allegation that was brought up. And not only um, secret, but completely in based on the information that we found, um, com completely fraudulent. Um, one, one particular ceremony was conducted without any witnesses um, in his office at the masjid. Did he perform his own marriage? I'm curious about that. Did he just do it? Yes. And it's, it's important for me to say right now that he's denying all of these allegations. Okay. Um, but, but we substantiated them to the point where we feel comfortable uh, publicizing this information, um, which is available in our report on our website. Um, but yeah, the, um, the woman and himself were in a room by themselves and he conducted, um, the, the ceremony. Got it. Um, for himself and her. Um, and th shortly thereafter, gotten married to another woman, um, and the officiant for the relationship was over the phone. Um, <laughs> and the first wife was not aware uh, that this had taken place. Um, and then he continued uh, to seek um, relationships with other women. Um, in the course of this time while he was married to these two other women. Um, so there was, there was a lot. That was, that was how it first came around. Yeah, when you read the report, it's like accusation after accusation, mm -hmm. incident after incident. It's like mm -hmm. more stomach churning each one you read. It's mm -hmm. like, you know, like you can't make this stuff up. I'm sorry, you know, kids well, don't make it up and there's kids involved. So. There's kids involved. And not only, not only that, it's like you can, he can deny all of the allegations, but when this many people come forward and Absolutely. none of them are connected to the other one in any sort of official way, um, you know, one person came in off the street, like literally came in, not a, mem not a regular masjid goer or anything like that, comes in off the street and says that he assaulted me in his apartment, you know, and she swears up and down she swears on the quran she swears up and down that this happened to her and it's not like she's not connected to any of the other ones well not just that she can describe the inside she of his can apartment describe the inside of his apartment yeah. all of these things so giving very specific granular detail and then you find out he was fired for similar behavior in another facility like that that in and of itself becomes a form of corroboration, becomes a form of substantiation, yes. because there were so many people um, giving this information and, and giving these statements to us. So, um, so you know, it was, you had this, you know, marriage fraud, you had um, abusing children under his care, throwing things at them, pinching them, you know, that sort of thing. And then you have this sexual 
battery and we just erred on the side of caution in in using that terminology right um, battery versus abuse yeah or assault um mm-hmm. but but we we erred on the side of caution with that but if you look at it he assaulted her you know like this these are yeah. serious allegations and and there were things that we couldn't substantiate that we believed to be true but we couldn't substantiate that that are are not included in the report but it shows the kind of deliberate sort of um behavior which is really concerning and um of course lit a fire under myself and my team members that you know we we need to make sure this report gets out sooner rather than later because he was hired somewhere else Um, exactly closer to my house which is why I got upset are you I was like, serious oh my god dude it's 15 minutes from me mm-hmm. and I'm like it's not my masjid but it's like close enough to where we could run in, into each other mm-hmm. and you know who is he working with another mm-hmm. vulnerable population mm-hmm. he's been put in charge of refugees and it's like are you kidding me like mm-hmm. you can't you can't put people who have nothing with somebody who is there to prey upon you know, with, again, like Alia said, multiple accusations, right? Mm-hmm. Not everybody can be lying. Let's say two or three of them are lying. That's still a good handful of people just in this city who are accusing him of misbehavior. We're not even talking about the other states, Yeah. you know? And that's why I think FACE is important because not just the investigative aspect, mm-hmm. but like we need some kind of a national registry of sex offenders uh, or imams who are sex offenders well, or been accused mm-hmm. of sexual offenses. That's exactly what, what we're working towards is because we are a national, uh, we're technically we're an international organization. So we work in Canada as well. Um, uh-huh. And we are developing a, a registry where we've even researched past incidents that have happened um, that you know, people don't know about because they got one local news report done and nobody ever heard about it again. So we're trying to create that so that people can go, if they're going to hire somebody, people can can contact us because we may not have a public report available, but we may have a private information available. So people who are in, you know, positions of um, authority who are in charge of hiring and such can contact us and say, do you, do you know of anything on this person? Um, and so that's absolutely something that we are working towards to help make available so people can make better hiring decisions. Um, on top of there's, there's some, you know, new initiatives in addition to ours, um, that are working on the educational aspects and, and helping, um, you know, on the compliance side of things and and whatnot. So there's, you know, we've we've uh, sparked a movement in many ways um, to to try and address this because for whatever, if people don't like what we're doing, um, they can't not think about it and they can't not do something about it. So we're we're at least happy for that that there's some efforts um, to try and and help these massages make better decisions. What are some of the things that we as parents can kind of look out for when our little, you know, mm-hmm. I always say the inner voice comes up that we can either mm-hmm. ask our kids to bring that out for them with them or look mm-hmm. for um, when we're kind of assessing a situation. So it's important for me to clarify that I'm, I'm not an attorney or a mental health expert, um, but I can share with you what I've learned um, in the time that I have uh, been doing this work. 
one of the things that um, is looked for for children who are being physically um, hit is, you know, if they're not wanting to go to class anymore, especially if it's something that's all of a sudden. Yes. Um, okay. Or they're they're showing some some real hesitation in wanting to go or they make comments like the person is mean it's not necessarily an indicator but it's a sign to pay attention to um it's a sign uh that they may be uncomfortable for whatever reason maybe it didn't happen to them but they may have seen them do something to somebody else um we we oftentimes don't take kids seriously enough yes and most of their um, reactions to things are very authentic and genuine. Um, and so you have to take those types of things seriously. Uh, another um, aspect is if you see a young child, especially one who um, in the in the course of their normal day wouldn't have access to um, adult types of scenarios. So if you see them acting out um, behavior that is, uh, sexual in nature or very adult behavior or they are um, you know becoming aggressive all of a sudden any any types of changes in their in their behavior or or exhibiting uh, what you might consider to be more adult type behavior um, can also uh, be an indicator of things if they become more secretive if they become more any any types of changes that you see where they're uh, withdrawing themselves or, um, you know, you've noticed a change in their behavior that is not part of their normal, um, you know, type of exhibition of themselves, right? So if you see any of those types of things, those are things to pay attention to and have, you know, conversations with them or... Um, if you need to get them to a professional, depending on the severity of it, um, so for them to be able to, if the thing about um, like mandatory reporting laws in, in various states is the majority, you do not have to know specific information. If you, if you have a hunch that um, if something you have like a, a strong, yeah, if you have a strong feeling that something's not right. Um, and I, I say this cautiously because um, I'm not a, a fan of how the police treats a lot of marginalized communities, um, obviously. I, right. I work with mostly marginalized and communities of color, and they're oftentimes not our friends. Um, so I say this with hesitation, but at the same time, when children are in danger, getting, you know... CPS involved or authorities involved may be your only option um, and for you know protection purposes uh, and for mandatory reporting laws you may be under an obligation to to report behavior um, so it's important for people to know that you know when you see changes in your child um, or you see uh, behavior that just doesn't sit well with you you should trust your instinct. You should, if you feel like something's wrong. The second thing that I want to say is it is not okay to hit children, especially in the course of religious instruction. It does not matter if that's how they do it, quote unquote, back home. It yeah. does not matter 
if that's how it's always been done, it is not okay to allow our children to be hurt and to be hit and to be pinched and to be humiliated, um, especially in the course of sacred instruction. That is absolutely against the prophetic model and it is absolutely against the law. (laughs) So you have to take these things seriously. I have had parents who said I didn't report it because I didn't think it was that big of a deal because that's how I was taught. That's how it happens back home. This person is from back home. This uh, person, you know, they're from a village. They don't know better. It doesn't matter. There's absolutely no zero tolerance, no excuses for uh, striking a child in any way, shape, or form, humiliating a child in any way, shape, or form. And that has to be reported and taken seriously immediately. And as members of boards and, you know, teachers sometimes in these Sunday schools, Mm -hmm. you are all mandatory reporters, which means that's an additional liability, I feel like, on a masjid community, which I'm like, if I was, if an imam that had been allegedly um, abusive in another state came to my state and I didn't know about it, I would be trying to file a civil suit against that original masjid he came from, Mm -hmm. from out of state or in my state, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. As a parent, I would want to prosecute that person and go after them Mm -hmm. um, because you had an opportunity Mm -hmm. to prevent this from happening to my child Mm -hmm. and you didn't do it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's why I think the louder we get, the better, because I don't understand the silence of overseas. Mm -hmm. And you brought up an interesting point about maybe an imam is from a village or maybe this is how they do it back home. So all of these patterns of um, imam abuses that happen in America happen because of potential cultural gaps, because of potential language barriers. Maybe there's misogyny, narcissism involved that we don't understand as Americans. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess in some ways we do. Um, But, you know, if, if it keeps happening, I feel like the trend is maybe this whole overseas imam thing doesn't need to happen anymore that should not be our standard that we're importing them from other countries we should be growing them here on our own soil you know and involving more training of women imams so that our girls are not having to go to seek spiritual guidance one-on-one from a man like i don't even understand you know if we don't provide the resources we're just going to perpetuate the abuse so i think it's i think it's really important that we don't identify a demographic of person that uh, we want to marginalize. I think it's, there are some superb, excellent, wonderful imams um, who have originated from overseas. That's, that's one thing. The second thing is, it's not just imams who abuse. It's teachers, it's men and women um it's american born it's this this problem is a human condition this problem isn't pinpointed so what what we have to do we certainly need more female scholars um for uh 
for not only for women to have access to, but for men to understand a different perspective um, from a different gender. We we know that in our prophetic tradition, our first teacher, you know, was Aisha Radilahonha. So we have already in our prophetic model that women taught men and men taught women, but having female scholars gives another level of access. But females can also be abusers. This is this is critical. And this issue is not um, just on uh, imams in particular. It's on heads of organizations. It's on teachers. It's on counselors. It's it runs the gamut the the issue is, in our estimation, people in positions of authority who violate their position for their own personal gain. And what our responsibility is in, a, in the community, outside of law enforcement mechanisms, is that we create a culture that doesn't tolerate it from anywhere. That creates a culture where we establish proper protocol for how to engage in your position. And when violations do happen, that we understand how to handle them in a way that centers the vulnerable population or the victims that have come forward. If we do that and we don't focus in on uh, a particular demographic, uh, then we're going to be able to really address this issue with the substantive measures that it requires because what you what you run the risk as if you say we can't bring anybody from overseas anymore what happens is if you run the risk uh, if you do that you run the risk of not only being discriminatory and unjust uh, to a particular population you also risk turning a blind eye to where other abuses may be happening. And so you get desensitized. You might not be focusing on the, the whole community and, and you um, get blindsided when something else happens. So it has to be for everybody in all positions of power, um, in all backgrounds, all walks of life, all ethnicities, all national origins, all genders, etc. We all have to be accountable um, to these guidelines and to these rules and codes of conduct um, So and, and be held um, responsible when we do violate. Because um, it's, a, it's a human condition. It doesn't matter their religious background. It doesn't matter their cultural background. It doesn't matter their gender. I actually was thinking like that's actually really important because uh, the reality of the situation is um, when you it's an illness on some level right so I don't think that that has any kind of ethnicity gender it's it's to your point a human condition and what in places like face and other organizations just kind of help help people that are in these situations and perhaps we can prevent it from happening to other people. So I definitely appreciate all the work that you guys are doing um, for the community. So we're going to lighten the mood a little bit, Alia, (laughs) and find out what self-care you were able to do because I think the last time you and I spoke, you were in need of some. This, This work has actually made me an even more conscientious Muslim and it's it's strengthened my faith in so many ways. Um, you would think it would have the opposite effect, but alhamdulillah, it, it didn't. But 
if you're not careful, um, it will have a, it will take a hit on your heart. And, and there are, are new challenges that you face from a spiritual perspective. So making sure that you are centering Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the process and that you are constantly checking your intentions for doing this work and that you're constantly, um, you know, trying to rid yourself of any of the, the negativity or the um, ill intentions or anything like that, that you're constantly performing tazkiyah as much as you can. I like most your intention audit. I just definitely appreciate all the um, the work that you do and the information that you provided for our listeners today. So thank you so much, Alia, for coming on the show. Not at all. My yes. pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity, ladies. Thanks again for joining Zeba and Uzma on Momming While Muslim today. Please email us your thoughts or questions and follow us on Facebook and Instagram because this podcast was designed to cater your needs. Make sure you check out the show notes to find the links and resources for this episode. And remember to help a mama out and leave a review of the show as well as to like it on your podcast app of choice because that helps us grow. Tune in next week for another episode of Momming While Muslim. Assalamu alaikum, everyone.